We live in momentous days. But so did the apostles. They lived at a time when God moved powerfully. And when God changed the face of an empire through his work. He can do it in our nation. He changed an empire. It took 300 years, but he did it. It may not take 300 years for us. Well, most of us won't see that. Well, maybe you will. I don't know. <laughs> but I certainly won't. And, but God can do it. God can change things. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We get to the exciting bit next week. Acts chapter 2. But we're, it's all exciting. It's all good because it's the word of God. So we're going to look at what happened between Jesus' ascension into heaven and the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. Let's read from verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons were there together and said, Brethren and sisterin, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by his mouth, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, that is, acquired a field with the price of wickedness and fell falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Pleasant picture for the Sunday morning, isn't it? And it became known as to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in, in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it's written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let, let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias. And when they prayed and, and then they prayed and said, you, look, you Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they, threw, drew, and they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So as we said, this episode takes place between the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. And in it, we gain insight into the thought processes of the believers and their method of seeking God for guidance prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. As we reflect on this incident, we'll consider Judas and all that happened to him. We'll consider the markers of an apostle. And we'll consider how we should get guidance in our decision making. And finally, we'll just sum up what happened to Matthias himself. And so by this time, the gathering of believers, we're told, was 120. Hopefully they were not all gathering in the upper room, or else it might have been fairly tightly packed and fairly smelly. At the beginning of chapter 2, we're simply told that they were all together in one place. So we can assume that they, they found somewhere that could accommodate that 120 people. Again, we're told that there were both men and women in this gathering. And we see the Peter the, taking the, the leadership role. He seems instinctively to have been the spokesperson for the apostles, whether or not he always got it right. And it seems a little odd that later on, when we come into the book of Acts, He's not the one leading the church in Jerusalem. It's James, the brother of Jesus, leading the church. 
So perhaps Peter's gifting was different from James. Perhaps James was a good administrator doing all this stuff that a church needs to do. But Peter was sort of out there preaching the gospel and doing, doing the stuff out in the world. But he certainly was the spokesperson at this time. And so Peter begins his dialogue by identifying two scriptures with Judas. And we see those two scriptures in verse 20. Let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. And these two scriptures are from Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, verse 8. And in both of those scriptures, David is describing his enemies, those who have risen, risen up against him. And of course, as we look at those Psalms, we can look at them, see them prophetically, looking forward to Jesus that his enemies rose up against him, and Judas was one of those. And the disciples were identifying that Judas was actually being prophesied in those scriptures. And in those same scriptures, they then identify that, that um, what happened to, to him after, after his death, that that place would be desolate. But they also identify the fact that they needed to replace him amongst the twelve. And so they're looking at those scriptures to, de- to determine what they're going to do within this situation. They'd read those Psalms, and following the crucifixion, they'd begun to understand the prophetic nature of, of one such as these two. Out of that understanding, they interpreted these references to David's enemies, and also referring prophetically to those who crucified Jesus, and particularly Judas. In fact, one of the Psalms actually mentions that um, you off- offered me vinegar, And, of course, we see that fulfilled in the cross. That's in Psalm 69, verse 21. And they realized from this that they needed to replace Judas. So what do we know about Judas? This man whose name is a synonym for betrayal. Anyone heard the clip of Bob Dylan when he plugged in his electric guitar and somebody loudly in the audience shouts, Judas! Because he betrayed his folk roots. Of course, it's, it's that idea of betrayal that is summed up in the name Judas. We know that he was one of Jesus' disciples, which suggests that Judas was with Jesus from the beginning. We also know that he was one of the twelve. He'd heard all of Jesus' teaching. He saw all the miracles. He even went out preaching himself about the kingdom of God. He did miracles in Jesus' name. as Jesus sent out the twelve in Matthew chapter 10. We know from John 12 that Judas carried the purse. He was the treasurer. And he wasn't uh, uh, averse to dipping his own hand in for his own purposes as well. It was he who condemned Mary at Bethany for her act of extravagant worship when she broke the alabaster container of perfume and poured the contents on Jesus. And so he was there. He saw it all. The question is, why did Jesus, Judas, betray Jesus? Why did this man who had seen it all, who had heard the declaration, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Why, having known fully who this man was, did he choose to betray him? He'd been with them as they walked into Jerusalem with the cries of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Perhaps it was at that moment 
that, that, that Judas was convinced that he was following the wrong Messiah. The Messiah he wanted was one who would throw off Roman rule, who would set up the kingdom in which he, Judas, would be one of the leading participants. He would get a role, he would get status, but Jesus hadn't come to throw off the Roman rule. He'd come to set up a kingdom, the basis of which was love and faith and just justice for all. Perhaps he just had enough of traipsing around the countryside, sleeping out rough and having little or no money for himself. We know from both Matthew's gospel and Mark's that Judas went to the priests to betray Jesus, immediately following Jesus, anointing by Mary. And at the end of that passage, Jesus rebukes him. Perhaps that rebuke was the last straw as he gets told off by Jesus himself. And maybe he wants to get his own back in some way. Perhaps he didn't imagine the consequences of his actions. Perhaps he never thought that, that ultimately it would result in Jesus being put on a cross. He was disillusioned. Perhaps I would suggest that he didn't think that far ahead. But if he did think that far ahead and thought he was betraying Jesus to death, this was one of the most callous acts in history. John 6.70 tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. In fact, he describes Judas in that scripture as a devil. Also, at the Last Supper, Jesus makes it clear to Judas that he knew what he'd done. By this moment, Judas had already betrayed Jesus, and Jesus hands him the sop. The one who betrayed me is the one to whom I give the sop. Jesus knew all that had happened. We're also told in John 13 too that the devil had already prompted Judas to betray him. And in John 17, 12, Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition. The one, or what that means is the one doomed to destruction. And the only one of the disciples who had got lost along the way. The character of Judas raises many difficult questions that are not easy to answer. If Judas was always destined for hell, how can God be just? Doesn't this just suggest that Judas was God's plaything in his purposes? Or as Gloucester says in King Lear, Act 4, Scene 1, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Is that the view that we have of God when we look at Judas? Such questions lack betray a lack of understanding of the character of God and the nature of God's intention. God's character tells us that he loves us all so much that he sent his son to die for us. He wants none to go to a lost eternity. And I believe at the final judgment, God will not have a smile in his face, but tears in his eyes over those who have rejected his great salvation. God doesn't play with us. The depth of his love for us is beyond our comprehension. God's character also tells us two other things that are relevant here. Firstly, he has absolute knowledge. Nothing surprises him. Nothing takes him unawares. He knows how all things will work out in this world. And hence he knew the path that Judas would have taken even before he was born. Secondly, God doesn't override free will. Listen, Judas did not have to betray Jesus. 
It wasn't something that he had to do. Judas chose to betray Jesus. It was a deliberate and knowledgeable act on his part. And in that sense, he's no different from every other person who has rejected God's salvation. He knew what he was doing, and he did it anyway. Our responsibility is to make known the gospel and give people that choice. It's their responsibility whether or not they make that choice to follow God. And God will work out his purposes through and despite our human decisions. God has all things in hand. But he will not force anybody to come to faith. He will make every the way possible. He will create the environment. He will give them the opportunity. He will give them the word. But every man, every woman, every child must make their own decision to follow Jesus. And God is a just God. And will ensure that there is fair treatment for all. And Judas chose, out of all his knowledge, still to reject God. And there are many who still do. But thank God for his salvation. Thank God for his love. Thank God for his grace and mercy that God never gives up on anyone and always gives opportunity for repentance. Luke records for us in this book how Judas ended up and how the field which he died came to be called Acheldama, the field of blood. From Matthew's account, Matthew 27.5, we know that Judas hanged himself. From Luke's account, we find out his body burst open. And I'd suggest, and I'm making a suggestion here, that he must have fallen off his own scaffold somehow. Also from Matthew's account, we see that it's the chief priests who bought the field um, using Judas' blood money. But Luke, in Luke's account, Judas himself bought it with the blood money. And it's quite hard to tie up those scriptures. But what we do know is this field became a place of desolation. And I'm told from what I've read that it still is today. You can still go to that field in Jerusalem or just outside, and it's still desolate. The the prophetic scripture was fulfilled. Well, enough of the negative. We turn now to Judas' replacement. And Peter identifies a number of marks that are required to signify a suitable apostolic candidate. Someone who had witnessed Jesus' ministry on earth and had accompanied the disciples from the beginning. Also, somebody who had witnessed the resurrection. In other words, had seen Jesus in one of his multiple appearances after the crucifixion. By the time Paul was writing, both in Corinthians and Ephesians, the term apostle had expanded He had come to incorporate more than just those two marks, those who had been with Jesus and those who had seen his resurrection. It was seen as a foundational ministry for the church. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul identifies that God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In Ephesians 4.11 and 1 Corinthians 12.28, he declares that the ministry of the apostle is a gift of Christ to the church in order for us to complete the work of ministry. The term apostle means sent one, someone sent forth. And in there is a sense in which the 12 were uniquely apostles as they were the ones directly commissioned by Jesus, particularly in Matthew 10. However, as the early church developed, others were also identified as apostles, including Paul and in Romans 16, 7, Andronicus and Junius. 
In 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, Paul tells us that some were posing as super apostles and he condemns them as false apostles. So while the apostle refers, does refer to the 12, it's also a title that soon became a function. The role of apostles in the early church was to plant churches and lay foundations. And it was an itinerant ministry. And if you look in the Didache, which was a, a, an instruction book that the apostles wrote at the end of the first century on how to do church, it talks about how to receive an apostle. And again, it says if he comes to you one day, he's a, he's a proper apostle. And if he stays two days on your, on your, um, uh, at your expense, then he's a, a false apostle. So you know how to judge a false apostle. If he stays, outstays his welcome. But they were traveling around, supporting the church, building the church, laying foundations. And I believe the church needs apostles today. I don't mean a new apostolic reformation, and those some will know what I mean by that, of those who raise themselves up as apostles, but rather those who do the work of an apostle, the work of planting churches, of laying foundations in the lives of others who come to faith, so that the church might grow, might be built up. May God raise up another Paul. May God raise up another Apollos in our generation who will faithfully do the work required at a local level and see many come to faith and be rooted in Christ. Maybe even there's some apostles amongst us. Who knows who God will raise up. So how did they go about this process of choosing a replacement for Judas? Well, it seems they, they undertook the ancient version of putting the names in a hat and seeing which one came out. Hopefully under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Of the two names submitted, it was Matthias who was chosen by this method. And this way of choosing draws on the Old Testament methods of finding the will of God in a situation. We could talk about Gideon, who of course laid out a fleece one day and said, Lord, if the ground's wet and the fleece is dry, I know that's your will. And then the next day he says, I'm still not sure if the fleece is wet and the ground's dry, then that's your will. You know, that's one way. Or we could think of the Urim and the Thummim. You know about the Urim and the Thummim? It was something the priest had in his vestments, and scholars believe one was a white stone and one was a black stone. And if he pulled out a white stone, that was God's will to do that. And if he pulled out a black stone, that wasn't God's will to do that. Do you know why we don't know what the Urim and Thummim is today? Because if we did, some enterprising Christian would manufacture them and sell them on every Christian website. Do you think that's a good way to find the will of God? Let's all have a stone, two stones, black one and a white one, and see, see what happens. Might as well throw the runes or something. Yeah, <laughs> that makes it okay. <laughs> In the new covenant, we have the spirit of God with us. We don't need to find the will of God by some ancient device or by circumstances alone. We need to ask. James 1.5 tells us, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Ask. Wait. Listen. Listen to that still, small voice. Listen to God to bring revelation. 
A prophetic word may confirm what God has already spoken. Circumstances may seem to point towards the same conclusion. Good advice from those that we trust may also bring confirmation, but there is no substitute for our own revelation from God lining up with his word. He loves us and he gives us his Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. So when it comes to decision making or seeking the will of God, there's one place to start, and that's by asking. Asking God and then listening to the still small voice of the Spirit as he whispers into your heart what he would have you do. Then, and only then, seek confirmation from others. So what happened to Matthias? Well, this passage here is the only place in the whole of the New Testament, in fact, to the whole of the Bible, where Matthias is mentioned. Some have suggested that the apostles made a mistake and should have waited for Paul to come along to make up the twelve. I personally don't agree with that. Because Paul didn't fulfill the criteria set by Peter, who was with Jesus, as one who was with Jesus from the beginning and had witnessed directly Jesus' resurrection. Tradition tells us that Matthias eventually headed north, ended up in Georgia, South Russia, where he was martyred. And that's about all we know of him. There is um, one tradition that his remains are brought back to somewhere in Italy, and there's a church in Italy where you can go and see his remains, but we're not sure. All we know is he did become a sent one. He did go out, and he did fulfill the role that was given him of being an apostle. So this morning, we've considered Judas and all that happened to him. We've considered the markers of an apostle. We've considered how to get guidance in our decision-making. And finally, we've just had a brief look at what happened with Matthias. And this week, I want to encourage you to learn from the apostles. Seek God first in everything. Be guided by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Seek his will. Make good choices. Follow and pursue his kingdom. Amen.